and welcome to Reading McCarthy. Reading McCarthy is a podcast devoted to the consideration and discussion of the works of one of our greatest American writers, Cormac McCarthy. Each episode will call upon different well-known Cormacian readers, scholars, and other experts to help us explore different work and various essential aspects of Cormac McCarthy's writing. My name is Scott Yarbrough, and I'll be your host for these forays into the deep wilds, dark roads, back alleys, and badlands of Cormac McCarthy. And it brings me great pleasure today to bring back our panel in our two-episode consideration of one of his most important novels, Blood Meridian. Returning panels include Dr. Steve Fry, who's a professor and chair of English at California State University, Bakersfield, and president of the Cormac McCarthy Society. He's the author of Understanding Cormac McCarthy, University of South Carolina Press, editor of the Cambridge Companion, Cormac McCarthy, and Cambridge University Press's Cormac McCarthy in Context. He's written numerous journal articles on Cormac McCarthy and other authors of the American Romanticist tradition, additionally he's the author of the recently published Dogwood Crossing. Stacy Peebles is chair of the English program, department, director of film studies, and the Marlene and David Gritson Professor of Humanities at Center College in Danville, Kentucky. She is the author of Welcome to the Suck, narrating the American soldier's experience in Iraq, published 2011, and Cormac McCarthy in Performance, Page, Stage, and Screen, published 2017. Co-editor of the recently published volume, Approaches to Teaching the Works of Cormac McCarthy, she has been editor at the Cormac McCarthy Journal since 2010. Rick Wallach is one of the OGs and founders of the Cormac McCarthy Society and recently retired after some number of years teaching English University of Miami, senior editor at the Cormac McCarthy Society Casebook Series, editor of two-volume collection of essays, Sacred Violence, as well as Myth, Legend, Dust, Critical Responses to Cormac McCarthy. He's co-editor with Linnea Chapman King and late James Welch of From Novel to Film, No Country for Old Men. He's written widely extensively on numerous topics in literature, film, media, and contemporary music. I'm proud to welcome the panelists back, and we'll jump back into it here. kid, although we never have him being positioned as Ringo, the Ringo kid or kid cult outlaw of Marvel Comics or any of these guys who stands against the judge literally. In fact, he kind of refuses to do so when he has a couple of chances, but the judge accuses him of, of, and I'm trying to find the page and I don't, I didn't have it marked like an idiot. Clemency for the heathen? Yes. And of course, we realize that it's not only talking about the corpse of the long dead Indian woman at the end of the novel, but rather when he is supposed to leave Sproul behind and he doesn't want to do it when he's supposed to, no one else will help Brown pull the arrow from his thigh and he goes to do it knowing, you know, don't you know, he'll take him, you know, take you with him. And there seems to be some part of him that refuses to utterly give in to the evil that men do to every man for himself, this kind of Darwinistic will to power, force the other person to observe your way. And that's why the judge fixates on him late in the novel uh, or, or throughout the novel. And then it comes back for him, of course, by the end of the novel. Again, it comes for him a couple of times, right? And leaves him and comes back again. And so are we supposed to read in that anywhere? Just some sense of the, that here is a kind of, through line to how you can be that the kid is stumbling around it show clemency in your heart for the heathen or 
and, and the kid's just not developed enough to get there? Or maybe as a part two, is McCarthy's worldview as he writes this in 1985 consistent with our worldview of the last portion of Cities of the Plain from more than a decade later? Or does it change a little? And of course, full nod to intentional fallacy. How do we know what McCarthy's worldview is? <laughs> okay. Based on your reading, if you had to make a response, are they consistent? I mean, is he, does he lighten up? You know, is this his darkest and he lightens up? Or is there that thread of what we see from Billy Parm at the end of Cities of the Plain mm. already present? Or The Road. I mean, that's maybe, that's... Right. I, you know, those two books are so different in so many ways. Style, affect, all that stuff. Um, context, obviously, genre. But if that's the reading you take of Blood Meridian, then you can draw a line to, to the road, right? And thus also, I think, to Cities of the Plain, right? The, the, the epilogue. But I think the road as maybe now McCarthy's most famous work, right? It's one that wins yeah. the Pulitzer. Um, that's, that brings him up. We always talk about 92 and the publication of Pretty Horses is the turning point. And it certainly was, but I think, the, I think Pretty Horses has been dwarfed by the road just in terms of readership. Well, Oprah. Yeah, yeah right? Oprah. <laughs> among, among, you know, yeah. lots of other stuff. <laughs> and, you know, part of... And you notice I don't have to ask Rick to explain who Oprah is like I did. <laughs> right, right. So, everyone knows who common. Oprah is. But, you know, one of the reasons that book is so popular is because it engages a lot of these same questions, or at least I think so. But it is a little bit easier to get your hands around, to say the very least, um, even if even though people do find, I think, the ending somewhat frustrating sometimes. There's much more of a full-throated uh, humanist Mm-hmm. right conclusion whereas you know i can right. read blood meridian as humanist and i do but i gotta i gotta work at it you know that's a that's a that's a yeah. breaststroke yeah. I, like i gotta <laughs> i gotta cut through the cut through well, a lot you, of you gotta you gotta take your <laughs> to your, get there you, you have to take your post hole digger and plunge <laughs> it down into the book open it and i really think no one should be allowed to read the end of the book if you haven't had to do a quarter mile fence <laughs> line of post holes. And I will tell you, if you're doing that in any kind of hard ground, um, it'll make a believer out of you. A believer in what? See, there you go. To you. Say thank you for uh, supporting my reading. <laughs> now, Chip Arnold somewhere talked about Blood Meridian and he talked about the kid. And he said that I think something like that his resistance is a failed resistance. This may have been written somewhere, it may have been in a com- ah. conversation I had with him, but that he presents evidence that the judge can be resisted in spite of the fact that that that, that resistance fails, that the act of agency, regardless of its outcome, is significant. I think what we might argue, and I'm not committed to this, is that the resistance to this kind of violence or or brutish reality uh, becomes more victorious or guardedly victorious as we move through the border trilogy, uh. especially as the kid, excuse me, as John Grady Cole, you know, confronts the captain, right? Uh, there's a resistance to a similar kind of voice, right? Where, where the captain tells him, we're going to make the truth, right? Uh in, in all of that, that that we, you see more possibility for that resistance succeeding later. And that's why I think Stacy's right to talk about, about, you know, if you begin with this idea that the resistance is significant, even though it fails, then you do yeah. have a kind of through line. I wouldn't necessarily call it a softening, although I have in the past, but a, a certain moderation of a of perspective in terms of human possibility. You know? Right. Well, and we think of John Grady, who, although he confronts his judge-like characters uh, doesn't survive mm-hmm. them by the end of the Border mm-hmm. Trilogy. Yeah, 
Billy Parm, who who doesn't really confront everyone, mm-hmm. does survive. Right. Steve, that that was Harold Bloom's position as well. Uh, he, he told Peter Joseph in that uh, interview uh, mm-hmm. Peter did with him uh, that he felt that the kid's resistance to the judge at the end of the novel was, uh, he put it, heroic. Yeah, yeah he mm-hmm. said it was futile and, and chances are the kid knew it, but that he did it anyway, he resisted anyway. Mm-hmm. Was he, he felt a heroic right. act. That's yeah. further mm-hmm. than I'd be willing to go, but uh, it, it, thematically consistent with what you said. Yeah, And speaking of thematic, consistency naming is so important in the border trilogy but in blood meridian and the road our central or our one of our protagonists and the central protagonists of the road don't have names the kid and then just he the the man mm-hmm. we call him the father um so why make him a kid why and i've had an interesting discussion lately that our friend a lot of us share kirk kernut about this and i thought he brought up some good points but i want to hear what you guys have to say why make him a kid? Why call him the kid? Why is it the approach he well, takes I think in the it, book? Your discussion with Stacy that came up, uh, if, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I asked Stacy uh, too. Um, yeah. You know, that there were all of these, quote, kids, unquote, in Western uh, mythology, uh, kid cult, you know, Billy the Kid, uh, you know, any number of outlaws were kid this and that, or this and that, the kid. So there's a, a consistency there. But I think also the anonymity serves a couple of purposes. Number one, it inclines the reader to view the character as a kind of everyman. And I think that's important. One of McCarthy's premises in many of his works is that this stuff engulfs you. You wind up being anonymous despite yourself, given how minuscule your resistance is in the face of it. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you ever wish you could sit in on a conversation with some of your favorite authors and listen to them talk about their writing process, their path to publication, and of course, their newest novels? Hi, I'm Marissa Meyer, best-selling author of The Lunar Chronicles, and I would love for you to check out the Happy Writer podcast, where every week I talk with other writers about books, craft, inspiration, and how to bring a little more joy into our lives. The Happy Writer is available wherever you get your podcasts or find us on Instagram at Happy Writer Podcast. I will just add as a trivial note (laughs) that as editor of the McCarthy Journal, from the beginning, we had to make some decisions about stylistic choices that to be consistent. And one of the things that we do is we don't capitalize kid, the kid, uh, which a lot of. People, you know, in submissions um, will automatically do, but that's not it. It's not his name, as Rick points out. He is not the kid, like the Ringo kid in Stagecoach, um, one of my favorite, you know, my favorite Western characters. That's not it. He's not, he's not defined by that kind of Western type, like youthful, brash, skilled, right? When a character has that name, yeah. they're never the schlubby sidekick. They're never, you know, certainly never the bad guy. You know, that's that's how you know your hero. There's a certain um, uh, self-deprecation about it, a certain laconicism. Yeah. Right. And really, other than the laconic part, I mean, that's not how you describe the kid in Blood Meridian at all. So that, of course, I guess I should note, I mean, we also when the judge in the context of the journal, when people write about the judge, we also lowercase that unless it's his title, like Judge Holden, unless his last name is mentioned. I kind of like that too. (laughs) 
he is that's not his name in that context that is what he is exactly exactly stacy i mean the novel begins see the child and and then he becomes the kid Mm -hmm. emphasis on the fact that he's a kid and emphasis on the fact that later on he becomes the man Right. So, you know, uh, you know, if, if we were to be to, to think in terms of titles, right, then he would remain the kid. And so I think, you know, one of the things, too, that that I don't think is often talked about in the context of the novel, because we think of it in these universalist and almost, you know, broadly um, theological and metaphysical terms. But the kid is is abused. Right. He's illiterate. Mm. He's brutalized by his parents. Uh, he's ignored. And I think that spins back to what. Illiterate with the school teacher, right? With father. the school teacher father, that spins back to what what Rick was saying about identifying with the kid. Um, there's a lot of ways that that many readers or or people can identify with the kid and the various impulses that he ends up having. That taste for mindless violence that is a product of his environment, a very very real social environment that we tend maybe not to talk about as much in Bloodbraided because we're very preoccupied with some of these broader themes. Mm. Stacy brought up a really good point in our earlier discussion that it's mindless violence as opposed to mindful violence, <laughs> which is he's not out to purge the world of Native Americans yeah. or Mexicans, or he just kind of wants a saddle. <laughs> he wants money. He wants right. to get from here right. to there, better horse, better gun. Right. And he's just kind of going with the yeah. flow, which I suspect there are an awful lot of wars and an awful lot of harm done to each other over mm-hmm. history of some group of guys just trying to go at the flow and not caring if they have to, mow people down when they get there and if it does distinguish them from glanton and mm-hmm. white and the judge who have projects of their own and maybe it's an inscrutable project where the judge is concerned or at least they're not easily identifiable to late in the book i wouldn't want to be that mexican bartender that's for uh, yeah right <laughs> and by the way that that also the way that mccarthy represents the kid uh is a lot the way sam chamberlain represents himself in that final long chapter of my confession, you know, he's, he's, he's going with the flow. He's along for the ride. There is one, uh, yeah. one short episode where he shoots an Apache, uh, and then says to himself, uh, or said to the reader, uh, you know, and I, I had to stop and think about that. You know, he was on his land. He wasn't doing, you know, I was the interloper and I killed him anyway. Uh, this moment of, uh, moral reflection, but it passes very quickly. And then mm. it's back to business as usual with the gang, you know. Mm. Right. So he's called the kid, and from the very beginning, the judge has his eye on him, right? He turns mm-hmm. the horse to watch him. And then we connect that to something that shows up. And I, I've talked about this throughout these podcasts, and I have to come back to it. McCarthy has killed more babies than anyone in the history of, of Western literature, I think. And so every Maybe not the orchard keeper, but every other book, you've got one just about. The governor of South Dakota wouldn't like him at all. Yeah. So here we have the baby tree, right? And we combine that with the judge's pedophilia. Now, I know the pedophilia is something that Chamberlain talks about with the the judge, that there is this uh, missing girl he brings Mm -hmm. up, right, and implies that uh, his own judge, uh, Holden, was perhaps responsible but why does McCarthy go there? What is this? What is this about? In both cases, well, it, it, I guess. It, the very vulnerable and inefficacious quality of innocence. You know, definitely innocence definitely got to be cleared out of the way here. Um, <laughs> there's no room for it in this in this ethos uh, whatsoever. 
Well, the judge is all about moral transgression, yeah. right? And and so that is, if not the ultimate moral transgression, it's one of the ultimate moral transgressions, one of the ultimate taboos. So he almost has right. to be a pedophile, you know, I think, to, to yeah. be internally consistent as a character. And of course, there's that, that delicious irony that the judge looks like a huge baby <laughs> himself. So, uh, you know, also I'd point out as far as why, why does a judge have his eye on the kid? That's kind of predetermined from, you know, just what they are. You know, the kid is described as, as being small, but with big wrists, <laughs> big hands. And the judge is being described as huge, but with small and delicate hands and feet. It's like, you know, they chiasmatically <laughs> correlate, you know, they're, they're kind of, they're, they're kind of slotted into each other, mm. just existentially speaking. And they've got to do that kind of pas de deux mm. through the whole, through the whole novel. because You can that. talk about it certainly with the kid and with kids in general, but babies are maybe another matter because, yeah. I mean, we're talking about ultimate taboos. That violence serves literally no purpose, mm. right? I mean, yeah. a kid could conceivably pick up a gun and shoot back. Right. Right. Uh, yeah, and they, they do. In, um, in the and older children. Time. Right. Uh, older people, you know, whoever you're talking about. But a baby, I mean, it's, it's absurd. Right. That level of violence reaches what you can honestly call absurdity because you could leave the baby there and they would probably perish. Right. right. No effort is required. <laughs> and so what what is that? What <laughs> purpose is that serving? I mean, we talk about gratuitous violence um, and we talk about it in the context of the media and what constitutes gratuitous. That is literally gratuitous. Right. It serves no purpose. There is no way to rationalize yeah. doing that. Yeah, because because even if you're putting it in the context of of history where, you know, there were incidents where Native American tribes did commit infanticide. And of course, later, of course, there's, we know that there's incidents where American cavalry officers um, killed children. Right. And um, then, you know, look at again, the capital W Western tradition, you know, I mean, Hector's son is thrown off the gates of Troy. I mean, you know, you kill all of the children right. because you don't want them to grow up and avenge their deaths. But this is not a war in that traditional sense. I mean, what are the two sides? I mean, it, you know, it, there's it's such a chaotic mess that yeah. you're not you're not going to have revenge when everybody's yeah. violent. I mean, who's going to track that down, right? It's not a fairy tale where oh, these have been prophesized. You know, these children are prophesized to you know, grow up and do whatever. So all of the, I mean, there's all these other, you know, maybe mythic kind of level contexts where again, there's a ration, there's a rationale, but here. You just can't see anything, especially because of the environment. You think, well, again, if these children had been just left to their own devices, they would almost certainly die anyway. This is a little bit what put me off Blood Meridian the first time I tried it. I was falling in love with the language, and I'd read enough of Joyce and Faulkner and people like that. I wasn't particularly scared of the, the lyrical nature of the language or the erudition or the complexity. But I felt there were places where he was putting on the violence a little too hard. He was trying a little too hard to shock you. And honestly, I don't really feel that way about Blood Meridian any, anymore. I still have a little bit of that in me for Outer Dark. I feel like there's little two places where he's just doing mm -hmm. Southern Gothic to such a Gothic extreme that it's maybe a little bit over the over the top. And I, I know Nell will twist my arm next time I see her. But I, I'm always curious if it is just simply, you know, that that Yatesian notion that the blood dim tide, the ceremony of innocence mm -hmm. is drowned, and that, that this the world is so awful that innocence has no place in it. That, that, but but you're right. You can still show a dead baby in one of these massacres 
to get the thematic point across without the grotesquery mm. of the the baby tree that everyone who reads mm. the book remembers as well. And it may just be the O'Connor notion of the grotesque. Is the over the top absurd thing you do to call attention to the theme? Right, and still, you know, real life still has that beat. I'm sure. Right. Yeah. I mean, again, to go back yeah. to you know his point about you know, I, but I think you're right. I mean. The way I'm, you know, defending this point, it sounds like anything would be justified, but there's a lot to be said for the way that all of this is rendered. It's not, I don't know, what's my go-to, American Psycho or something like that. It's not Saw, (laughs) which I also don't like. (laughs) Yeah, I don't. You know, the violence as enacted in the world of the novel may have no purpose, but that doesn't mean the author doesn't. Right. Well, it has, well, but well, it has purpose. It has purpose in, in narrative strategizing. Um, mm-hmm. The the uh, dead babies uh, on the tree, the, the bush of dead babies, pale, bloated, larval to some unreckonable mm-hmm. being, <laughs> is the description. And it's so. Uh, off the of Rick a, Wallach a, memorizes a, the dead baby tree description. But go ahead, Rick. Sorry to <laughs> you want to hear me do the prologue <laughs> to the Canterbury Tales? No, I, I expressly uh, do not want to hear that. No, no. I think that using the dead the dead babies, calling them larval to some unreckonable being, when the preceding description is clearly also a description of the judge, is uh, you know is a strategic move on McCarthy's part. But it, it does two things. A, it it removes the scene from the level of the gratuitous, and B, it sets up a further understanding of just what a monstrous character the judge really ah. is, of his uncanniness, of his preternaturalness, if you will. Uh, you know that neotenous quality that the judge has is is problematic for the whole novel, and that particular scene. Uh, contextualizes it, I think. Which is very interesting. So I want to ask one little silly question that occurred to me partway to what we're talking about. I know that in parts of northern Mexico and the U.S. border with Mexico, in the last 25 years, we have this uh, promulgation of the the cult of uh, Santa Huerta, this idea of this kind of um, realized saint slash deity of death who represents the fact we all die and things are all going to end. And uh, yet she's sympathetic to the poor to people whose lives have been miserable to for whom death will be released and so on. And it just occurred to me that when McCarthy is really out West looking into all this is really when that's getting going in the, in the seventies and eighties, although it's more of a cult and underground until I guess late nineties or sometime. Do you think the, desiccated corpse he's supposed to he finds it's supposed to be a reference to that in any way or is that a bit of a stretch maybe a little too early in her uh wherever that that group mm-hmm. comes i remember that paolo talked about that as a failed confession <laughs> um you know he, ah. he says all this stuff to her uh, right he talks about his life he says like more than he said in the entire book <laughs> uh and then it turns out oh she's not so how do you want to read that? Um, and again, he put that in the context of, you know, kind of a failed sacrament, but. Um, well, when he finally goes to save right, someone, they're right. dead. <laughs> Nothing else yeah. is just futility. Well, but, you know, as we've been saying, is it the effort that matters or is it the result or is it both at the same time? Right. Earlier, we had reference to the kid being torn to shreds in the outhouse and to someone else thinking that the kid has been partly eaten 
I think I've, I've heard rape in the first ending. And Stacy pointed out to me that the, the ending of the kid's story is not the ending of the novel. There's a two page epilogue that, well, or in this book, a one page epilogue that follows it. What do you guys make of the ending? The whole sequence where he encounters the judge again, there's the dancing and the bear and the little girl. Later, of course, the little girl goes missing and they come looking into the outhouse and they say, you know, oh God, don't go in there. Uh, what do you make of it? Uh, what are we supposed to make of it? What do you think about it? I might just say to start that I love like McCarthy's terraced endings. I like how uh, the road ends in about three different places. And the final yeah. one is the last paragraph, which is, you know, doesn't need to be there, but it changes the whole thing. Blood Meridian has like the kids ending, the judges ending, and then the epilogue. Cities of the Plain. Okay, let's finish the story up. Oh, yeah. now I've got a really long epilogue. And then I've got a poem, like after that, right? On the very yeah. last page. Yeah. So I like that about Blood Meridian too, that in some senses, you know, having multiple endings gives you a lot of valence because none of yeah. them, I mean, it's not, the judge is not the end and neither is the kid and neither is the apple. I mean, you know, they're all kind of working together, right? So that allows you to do an awful lot, which is fun. Yeah, you got it in yeah. no country yeah, too, by the right, way. Yeah. Right. It's not not it's not as it's not as separated as the other endings are in the other novels, but that uh and then I oh, woke yeah. up. Yeah. You know, and I know a lot of people I've spoken to about that movie have said, yeah. what the hell was that about? <laughs> you know, the the judge in the penultimate ending, uh the the to the novel proper, the judge says he says that he will never die. Right. It doesn't say he will never die. Yeah. Uh, but so the True. judge, we have a sense of what the judge thinks of himself or imagines himself to be, but it remains beautifully ambiguous mm -hmm. in terms of his, his metaphysical or physical status. Um, at, at, at the end, we know that he's, he's bad enough to kill the kid. Uh, and we know yeah. he thinks he's bad enough to live forever, but we don't know in the end. Although there's an interesting shift, which occurs entire novel up to this point. Well, we have our imperative sentence spoken by the implied author in the opening line, which is a present tense, see the child, he is pale and thin. And we have present tense here early on, which shifts as that chapter goes on into past tense after the first um, little space mm -hmm. break. And then this last paragraph jumps back into present tense mm -hmm. again. And so the whole novel, other than the first couple yeah. of pages, now this last paragraph is all, and again, I'm not mm -hmm. talking about the epilogue, and it says the end, by the way, and then it says epilogue. So it is yeah. even, not only is it terrorist, but there's some border work <laughs> done there as well. And they are dancing. The board floor slamming under the jack boots and the fiddlers grinning hideously over their canted pieces. Tiring over them all is to judge, and he is naked dancing, his small feet lively and quick, and now in double time and bowling, bowing to ladies, huge and pale and hairless, like an enormous infant. So back to how Rick always sees him. He never sleeps, he says. He says he'll never die. So that present tense is a little creepy <laughs> when we get to yeah. it. I mean, it's very, you get a little feeling of, well, young Edmund Brown, yeah. Devil and Daniel Webster, mm -hmm. that long tradition and those small feet making us think of maybe, you know, Mephistopheles <laughs> hooves or something like that as well. So any, any notions of how we're supposed to read what happens in the, the Jakes to the kid? 
I, I personally love that he doesn't yeah. tell us. I don't, and I'm astounded that people are so convinced of mm-hmm. a reading that this must be what happened or that must be what happened. All I know is it's horrible enough that these hardened Western guys are hor- are freaked out by it. I wouldn't go in there <laughs> if I were you. Right. In the spirit of young Goodman Brown, you cannot know. Mm. Right. And you, you really yeah. cannot superimpose a reading. You can, you can see what I imagine might be the case. But he does not just at a, at a basic narrative level permit you to say. Right. Which is appropriate for a novel that's already done the dead baby tree and the Comanche attack and all of this other stuff. Right. <laughs> I mean, I, that's. Yeah. How's, how's it yeah, going to be? That's, that's that. always what I yeah. tell my students is, well, he doesn't have to <laughs> because yeah. he's done enough to yeah. stoke your imagination. Right. <laughs> that, uh, you know, oh, my God, this yeah. must be you know worse than all this. But what could it possibly be? Yeah. yeah. It has to be veiled. You know, it, it finally has to be behind the curtain i'm sorry peter joseph isn't with us i, I would like to hear him argue for his position that at least partially <laughs> ate him <laughs> but uh, I, i'll represent peter and say that that's peter's position and let it go with that <laughs> well and i think you could probably make a good case for almost all the cases i've heard it's just i don't know if it's totally the case mccarthy himself was making hmm. So what about then the epilogue? We have our post hole digger and he's, and I know how Chip Arnold takes this scene and he draws an intertextual line to the lines of fence and all the pretty horses that John Grady and and Mm -hmm. Rollins have to ride through. But as he, of course, he's using this down into the road, we hear he chucks it into the hole and he kindles the stone hole with his steel hole by hole, striking the fire of the rock, which God has put there. And he goes on and on. And at the very end, he strikes fire in the hole and draws out his steel. Then they all move on again. What about that? There are a lot of articles, of course, that talk about the mm. Promethean fire being pulled right. from the rock. I have a kind of more recent reading I'm giving it. That I'll spring on you guys in a second. Mm. I'm just curious what you think of it. Stacey, wasn't it you who told me that yeah. people came up to you saying, what, is, <laughs> what are we yeah, supposed to make talk, the on, Yeah, I gave what a talk that, on the novel. What does the epilogue mean? And, you know, I did a little Q&A, but yeah, afterwards I had like several people just, whoop, you know, okay, this is what we want to know. You know, tell us, <laughs> tell us what this is. I mean, that's part of the fun of it is that it is so oblique, even in tone. How are you supposed to, it's not just like what's happening, which, you know, there's a, like you say, a fairly literal explanation. Well, what this is a post hole digger, you know, this is the closing of the West. This is what happens after barbed wire is invented. You know, this is what this is what ends, you know, what Frederick Jackson Turner would call the period of the frontier and begins the mythologizing that becomes the Western genre, right? Uh, so you can do that, you know, in some kind of literal sense. And of course, you know, that's what 100 years later, John Grady is encountering uh, in Pretty Horses is this is not the West that he wanted. He wants, he wants what he's heard about, <laughs> right? He wants, again, that kind of nostalgic, nostalgic genre, right? Uh, the stories that he's heard. But the way that it's rendered, the language is so heightened. It is so syntactically complicated in terms of the, you know, again, like the use of the subjunctive. Um, yeah, is this is this happening? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they appear restrained by a prudence or reflectiveness which has no inner reality. As you know, so, it lo- it looks like a validation of sequence and causality, as if each round and perfect whole owed its existence to the one before it. I think about, I talked about this with you, Scott. Well, does it? <laughs> yeah. Right. And so, as if. how are you supposed to take this? And that leads you to more 
the, the heightened language leads you to, you know, to more metaphysical interpretations or theological ones or whatever. Steve, mm-hmm. in Dublin, I think somebody asked you this question. Maybe this is just what happens to us uh, in public at public events these days as people yeah. come up and you know, ask us about the epilogue. Um, maybe when the new novels come out in the fall, this is, this is what <laughs> our newfound yeah, fame, yeah. you know, will, will lead us to experience this all in the, in the grocery store and, you know, other places, but somebody yeah. asked you this, and I think you had a pretty good answer. I, I can't quite remember, you know, which direction you took it, but you said, well, some people read it as this meditation on, I guess it was kind of logic and causation. Do you remember? Right. Yeah. Well, I think that, that it's a, uh, I guess one of the ways, you know, the war is God passage where where the judge is articulating this this notion of how the universe works is it there is this dark kind of order, right? In other words, there's a principle at work that that makes war this this ordering reality in the universe. If you see, he uses the term causality in the epilogue, but and and also evokes that idea of order. But now this is an order that's centered around a certain kind of community, and and insofar as insofar as you've got a community of people doing something together, then that's offering a different version of what that order might serve. I don't think that's in any way how I answered it in, in Dublin, <laughs> but there you go. Yeah, right. <laughs> well. Which makes you think of the beautiful ambiguity of Robert Frost mending mm. wall. Yeah. <laughs> and the man comes up like an old stone savage armed and good fences make good neighbors. At first we go, oh, that's ridiculous. And then the more you read it, the more you look at it, you think, well, maybe because of what we have to fence off inside ourselves is there's that, you know, Cormacian caveman yeah. still inside of us where we want to go out uh, and uh, destroy I think I have this right, and do feel free to correct me, but I also, to wrinkle this a little bit, I think in the first draft manuscripts of Blood Meridian in, in the Whitliffe collections, McCarthy in his marginalia says, this is also a burial scene. Mm. Oh, yeah. You know, I thought about that in Dublin because we were talking about McCarthy's legacy and his place kind of currently in the literary landscape, right? How would we assess it right now, again, on the eve of the publication of his his newest work, which is a pretty big deal. And we were talking about how one could maybe assume that his attitude towards scholarship is dismissive. <laughs> and then certainly he does not involve himself in our doings, uh, you know, right? Uh, leaves us to play our games. And that's great. We're very happy about that <laughs> in some level. But, you know, uh, as many artists, as they get older, you probably are, probably there's some pleasure to be taken in the fact that, yeah, we take his work so seriously. We teach it. We care mm-hmm. about it. Right. Does he ever, like Joyce with Finnegan's Wake, uh, enjoy leaving us little tidbits that he knows, you know, will bat around like cat toys for, for eternity? <laughs> and I've often thought about that notation, Steve. Right. Here, tink, <laughs> play with that. Let's <laughs> see what you can do with that well, for a while. <laughs> you know, they're gathering right. bones and maybe he's not digging holes for a fence. Maybe he's, uh, in my experience, I've always used, Post hole diggers mm-hmm. for fence posts. So that's where my mind goes. And I have to go back and reread it 40 times now. Uh, not uh, that page anyway. Maybe it's some kind of grave markers mm-hmm. or crosses or something like that. Mm-hmm. If that's what he's heading yeah. at. And maybe the gathering of bones is right. is more about, I don't know, burying, you know, people have been found dead out in the desert or creating. I don't know. I look for <laughs> fence posts. Yeah. It, well, it and some people sure. do. Um, some first-time readers of the novel will often say, well, is this the kid who's the man moving across? I mean, this is another character who's not named. 
like, oh, yeah, the kid, you know, is this the kid who's still alive? And I don't think that, but if it is something that is supposed to be in honor of something, I mean, you know, a burial, what do you do when you bury? You are honoring, you know, the dead. You're not just getting, you know, you're not just disposing right. of them. Well, then that also would cast your eyes again back to the kid, which is, you know, my, yeah, my go to reading. Yeah. But I also like to point out, uh, you know, at the moment of the kid's presumed death, stars are falling, you know, stars fell when he was born yeah. in 1833. Mm-hmm. I mean, he is memorialized at the beginning and the end of the novel. And so some people do like to read the epilogue as uh. some kind of memorialization. Um, but again, it's hard because the affect is so hard to read. It doesn't feel like the end of the road. <laughs> of course, I'm hesitating when I say that. <laughs> Here's where I'll throw to you guys that just occurred to me a little while back. And this may be very stupid. It may be something other people have written about much more intelligently than I could put it. But in the novel that he publishes about a decade later, The Crossing, we end with Billy Parham wandering disconsolate and lost and by himself. And he's just been, I don't know if he's just been mean to the dog or is about to be mean to the dog. And it's one of the saddest human and dog moments in a history replete with very sad human and dog moments. You know, anytime you put a dog in a book, it's just setting up to be sad. <laughs> he sees a nuclear test. And of course, at some level, the fire that is built into the rocks is the, the, the you know, we have at, at the smallest levels, we have atoms. And if we split those atoms or fuse them, we have an immense amount of fire release, uh, power, energy, destruction. And of course, this whole novel is about when we have the power to enact evil and war and violence upon each other, we we make it happen. And if that fire is there left to be pulled back out of the rocks, how is it conceivable? And I'm thinking again of particularly McCarthy's worldview as presented in Blood Meridian. How is it conceivable we will not use that? Well, fire? you know, boy, what do you do with fire in McCarthy? Yeah. Right? I mean, you yeah. have to do something. And yet I don't want to sort of buy into some sort of uh, intentional fallacy where he's somehow figuring it the same from the beginning, but the fire where, where the child is, is murdered in, in outer dark, the fire, uh, you know, right. that, that appears here in blood meridian, the, the there's an, any number of circumstances where you have an evocative image of fire in, in the border trilogy. And then the gourd uh, where the fire is being, where the father's carrying the fire in, in no country for old men. The yeah. Horn. Right. The horn, yeah, and and then finally carrying the fire. And I, I think it's dangerous to read any kind of programmatic consistency through all yeah, of those various sure. images. But I, I don't. I think we have to wrestle with what to what extent he is wrestling with with that the break. I mean, striking fire out of the earth, and it's a fire which God has put there. And, you know, as I, you know, articulated many times, Stacey, at the Dublin conference, let's be careful about using the term God in McCarthy or in any context, right? Because God in that great Melvillian tradition is not necessarily good. Um, And, and in that, in that context, that's exactly right. And, and so (laughs) I, I, but I don't think we can read over that, right? Uh, That it's somehow associated with some kind of transcendental reality, however, malevolent it may be 
or just unattainable, yeah, unachievable. Right. Yeah, I, I would I would say also there's another thematic strand there that you go back to the stonemason and uh, Papa's uh, lecture about uh, what God put into mm. the rock. You know what God yeah. put into gravity and the you know the the the, the uh, so uh, to me, there's a kind of a, you know, a, a oblique line from the fire in the rock that God put there to the, to the thumb of God pressing down the rock in, mm-hmm. in the stone. Mason. And isn't God in the most abstract deistic sense, didn't he put fire in the atom? This is back to, to Scott's point about the splitting of the atom and the release of the fire. And, and yeah. so, you know, I, I don't, I think you're on to something there, Scott, you know, a novel written in 1985 in the wake of the Cold War, in the midst of the Cold War, just as it's ended. All of that is, is right. evocative and something that, that we, we can grapple with, because ultimately breaking fire out of something that is material where it is contained is, um, you know, is, is what, what, you know, what the nuclear reality is all about. Mm. Well, and we've moved from the kind of pastoral history of mm-hmm. hunter-gatherers into people who are trying to claim vast swaths of land mm-hmm. for agriculture and herd development to the modern industrial mm-hmm. complex and that mechanized motion of the post hole digger going down. And it's nowadays, of course, if you're driving down the side of the road and it's any kind of power company or big deal fence company, they're not using those fence those kind of post hole diggers that my father was so fond of his boys using when I was a kid, they've got these large scale uh, mm-hmm. hydraulic drills and, and presses that are doing the same work. And it's that movement towards mechanization, which he also is fascinated with in mm-hmm. terms of violence. So as much as I don't like the counselor, the thing I do find most interesting is how violence in that film is completely mm-hmm. mechanized you know no one's going to use a knife when we can stretch a cable across a highway or have a device where we loop a cable a steel wire around your neck and the device will tighten it until you're mm-hmm. killed so re- removing the perpetrator of the violence from mm-hmm. from the scene uh much in the way that you know what what occurs in terms of development of warfare between the first persian gulf war and where we are now in the time span he's writing all this, well, uh, drones, where people can do all kinds of things at a remote video game level of, of, you know, of remove, where you don't have to actually be a real participant in a way. You can do it all from a distance with a joystick mm-hmm. and a keyboard. And I'm sure they're in much more elaborate setups than that. You know, we've seen the videos of those guys in the trailers out in Arizona or wherever. So I, I think he's playing with some interesting things there and in mm-hmm. his later work as well. The Harold Bloom thought that the uh, that post hole digger was a Miltonian mm. reference to uh, that the, 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 the two handed implement in in Bloom's discussion of it. Although I must tell you, I've read Milton pretty thoroughly. I can't think of where the two handed implement mm. comes from in Milton. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know where he's getting that myself. Thanks again to our panelists, Stephen Fry, Stacey Peebles, and Rick Wallach. Thanks, as always, to Thomas Fry, who composed, performed, produced music for Reading McCarthy. The views of the host and his guests do not necessarily reflect the views of their home institutions or the Cormac McCarthy Society, although in our hearts we hope they'll someday see the light. Download and follow us on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. 
If you're agreeable, it'll help us if you provide favorable reviews on these platforms. If you enjoy this podcast, you may also enjoy the Great American Novel Podcast hosted by myself and Kirk Kernut. To contact me, please reach out to readingmccarthy at gmail.com. Despite the evening redness in the West, we're socially mediated on Twitter and Facebook. The website is readingmccarthy.buzzsprout.com. And if you'd like to support the show, you can click on the little heart symbol at the top of the webpage to buy the show a cappuccino, or you can support us at www.patreon.com forward slash readingmccarthy. Thanks again for listening. Thank all of you guys.